I love a good mystery, and so does everyone else. In fact, everyone loves a good family mystery, especially one with as many twists and turns as June's Journey. I know that our listeners will absolutely love this game because you are uncovering the mystery of June's sister's murder, and you're becoming a detective. You're looking for clues, and each scene will lead you to a new thrilling storyline. This is a great way to engage your observation skills to uncover key pieces of information that lead you on to many chapters of mystery, danger, and romance. Right now, I'm in the process of interviewing family members, and this is bringing me back, just so you know, to my days in law enforcement, and I'm having such a blast with it because it is so much more lighthearted, but it also has the mystery of where will this take me? You can even chat and play with or against other players by joining a detective club. You'll even get the chance to play in a detective league to put your skills to the test. Megan, I think we should join a detective club together. We've got this. (laughs) Can you crack the case? Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. June needs your help, detective. Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcasts. This podcast may contain content that is graphic and disturbing in nature. Listener discretion is advised. On the evening of November 22, 2016, college sophomore Sarah Butler left her home in New Jersey to meet up with a man that she met on the internet. Nine days later, her body was found in a nearby park. This is episode 24, The Sarah Butler Story. Hi, Megan. Good to see you. Good to see you, too. So before we get started today, I just want to point out that August 18th will be the 100-year anniversary of the ratification of the 19th Amendment. Amy, do you know what the 19th Amendment is? Uh, Women's right to vote. Ding, ding. How does this relate to women in crime? According to womenhistory.org, Susan B. Anthony, who's on the coin, was an activist, and I'm sure you've heard of her, and a pioneer for the women's suffrage movement in the United States. And her work helped pave the way for the 19th Amendment, which was ratified again in 1920. Well, woman's crime at the time. After the passing of the 14th Amendment, Susan was angry that it had not included women's rights to vote. And so as a test, she voted in the 1872 presidential election. And can you guess what happened to her after? She was arrested? That's correct. She was arrested and fined $100 and... The judge's guilty verdict was written before the trial even happened. So you can see that there was a presumed outcome. It made people angry and it brought national attention to the movement and she didn't pay the fine. And didn't she pass away before the amendment was even passed? Sadly, she did. She died 14 years before it was passed. So you can check out our Instagram and you'll actually see a pic of my hand dropping in the Tennessee ballot. 
And reason why, Tennessee was the last state to ratify the amendment and the ballot box was from the 1920s era when women first voted. How do we know it is, in fact, your hand? (laughs) It's a good question because you have to take my word. You'll know my hand is my very best friend. Oh, yes, I will. We could do a side by side. (laughs) So check us out. So Megan, do we have some supporters to thank? Okay, so first we have Shronda Carter. Thanks, Shronda. Next, we have Saga from Sweden. Awesome. Thank I know. you. Isn't it cool to get listeners? I always think it's yeah. the coolest thing that they come so from cool. all across the world. We're very lis- uh, we're very lucky. Yes. We have April Lamaster, and April's from Iowa, and she says that she listens to get through her early mornings in work. Oh, thank you, April. We have Ariel Stockdale. Thanks, Ariel. And then we have Allie M, and I actually know Allie M. And who might Allie M be? She's one of my neighbors who listens and loves the shows, and she's so cool. I really like her. So That's awesome. I know. Thank you, Allie. We also have Laura Miner from Las Vegas, and Laura had a question about Jeffrey McDonald. That's great. You can check out our questions at the end of the show. We listened and we heard you, and we're now going to address your questions at the end. Yes. Thank you for your feedback. We really do read everything you send us and take it into account. So thank you for that. We also have Erin from Manassas. Thank you so much, Erin. We have Selena Jimenez. Thanks, Selena. And lastly, today we have Deanna from Slingerlands, New York. Thanks so much, Deanna, and thanks to everyone else for listening and for supporting us. And thank you to all of our supporters who showed up at our first AMA Happy Hour. Wasn't that fun? That was so much fun. It was so great to meet some of you, and I really hope that we can continue doing this and we can meet more of you. It was super fun. Thank you for the great conversation and the great questions. And if you would like to support us, you can check us out on Patreon, or if that's not your thing, we have a PayPal link on our website. And as always, you can leave us a review and we appreciate any feedback. Today, we are talking about Sarah Butler. So as you will see, this case is so tragic and has affected so many people, but it did not receive much media attention. And Megan, this case did not happen far from where we live and where we work. And I don't know it. Montclair, New Jersey. I'm surprised because I really don't know much about this, so I don't think it was publicized. And that's the issue that we'll talk a lot about. Okay. Sarah was only 20 years old at the time of her murder, Megan, you know Montclair, right? I know Montclair, yeah. It's only 30 minutes from New York City. Right. Excellent school districts, a very diverse town, really a lot going on, really good downtown scene, good restaurants. Montclair is a very affluent town. The family lived in what is known as the South End neighborhood. So this was more of a, or is more of a gentrified part of town. It's very hip, but it's not as upscale as what's known as Upper Montclair. Upper Montclair is a very wealthy area. Got it. Regardless, this family was a solid middle-class family. Both of Sarah's parents worked very hard to stay in that area. Her mother is Laverne. Laverne emigrated from Jamaica in the early 1990s and worked locally as a nanny for a family in Montclair. Her father, Victor, worked at a nearby country club, and there are some reports that he was also a bartender at a comedy club. Sarah was one of three girls. She had two sisters, and Sarah was the middle child. Sarah's family was part of a very close-knit community that was centered around their church. And by all accounts, Sarah did very well in school. She was described as bubbly with an infectious energy, and she was very driven. In high school, she actually led the dance team, and she was part of a traveling group at the Premier Dance Theater. And they won, I guess this group won the school's dance scholarship. They finished third at Amateur Night at the Apollo Theater in Harlem. So they were, you know. Yeah, pretty good. They were really good. She was also a lifeguard at the local YMCA. She often babysat. And there were some reports that say she was paying her way through bartending school. Wow. So after graduating high school, Sarah began attending 
New Jersey City University. Oh, right near me. Right around the corner from you, Megan. Literally. So she was a commuter for her freshman year. And this was also a very big deal. She was the first in her family to attend college. Understandably, like most students, she wanted to experience campus life. So she actually began living in the dorms her sophomore year. Course. Some of her close friends reported that she didn't like her roommates and she struggled to make friends, but overall she was a happy girl and had a lot of friends. Okay. So this is where the story starts. Her mother, Laverne, picked her up from school in Jersey City on November 22nd, 2016, around 8 p.m. She was actually picking her up to come home for a Thanksgiving break. Mm-hmm. After her mother picked her up, she asked her mom for the keys to borrow the family's van so she could go meet up with friends that evening usually what we did when you'd go home for Thanksgiving break, the first night, right? First night was always a big party night. Right. So, of course, her mother agreed. Sarah said she'd be out just a couple of hours, and her mom said, okay, no problem. Unfortunately, she hadn't returned by morning, and she hadn't answered her phone, and her family became very alarmed. And, of course, they began calling all of her friends, and they were even calling local hospitals, and eventually they did call the police. However, they, no one really had any, any answers for them. Sarah's sister and Sarah's good friend spotted the family's car, which was just a blue minivan. It was tucked behind a former factory just four miles from where she lived. Sarah's friends and her sister, they were kind of driving around trying to just check around, and they actually found the car that they were looking for, which is very rare. So, of course, they call the police at this point. The reason why they call the police in the car, not only was the car abandoned, but they also noticed um, a piece of her hair. This is the moment that when they realize something is wrong and Sarah's simply not missing, she was likely in danger. Right. Her hair was a bright red at the time. So it was. So her hair really stood out is what you're saying. It stood out. So yes, it was clear that this was in fact Sarah's hair. Sarah's friends and sister were very worried at this point. They rushed to Sarah's home and quickly decided to look at her social media. That's a smart place to start. Very smart. So luckily they knew Sarah's passwords. So they looked at her emails, they looked at all, you know, Facebook, and they also came across an app called Tagged. Have you ever heard of Tagged? No. Is this a new one? Oh, well, no, it was 2016. Yeah. So so apparently Tagged was, I guess it was an app and also a website that people, it was more like a hookup culture, not like a place you'd go to necessarily meet a long-term, someone in a long-term relationship, but more of like a hookup thing. There were also... Some reports that it was a place where people would go to solicit sex workers. I guess I'm just old and uncool. And they found that Sarah had interacted with a young man named Little Yacht Rock. Little Yacht Rock? Little Yacht Rock. And this was, in fact, Khalil Wheeler Weaver. So what they did, they saw that she had been speaking to him just a few nights prior. And now at this point, she's been missing for three days. So they're so smart, these girls. They decided to create a fake profile in an attempt to lure the man. That's really clever. So they made up a fake profile. They took, they found some sexy pictures and they tried to lure him by offering him sex. And guess what? He took the bait. He took the bait. So they arranged for a meetup and they were planning to meet at Panera Bread in Montclair, New Jersey. I've actually been to that Panera Bread, but. That's an odd place to meet. Right? So I think they were probably going to meet and then drive drive. away together somewhere. Yeah. Got it. I don't know that they were planning on doing something in the Panera, but anyway. I hope not. I hope not. Sarah's friends told the police that this this meetup was going to be occurring. So to his surprise, when Khalil got to Panera Bread, he was not met by this beautiful young lady. He was met by the police. Wonderful. Amazing. However, they questioned him briefly about Sarah. He ended up telling them his real name. They showed him an ID, but they had nothing to go on. They had no body, no evidence of a crime, absolutely no reason to consider him a suspect. They had no choice but to let him go. 
But that's okay because now things are starting to move. They're going to start, you know, surveilling him. And meanwhile, authorities were looking at Sarah's cell phone data and they discovered that the last ping was from Eagle Rock Reservation. So Eagle Rock Reservation is a nearby park. And on December 1st, which is just a week after her mom had picked her up from school, her body was found covered in leaves and other debris by a parking lot in that very park. At this point, they arrest Khalil. So when police arrest Khalil, it was just five days after Sarah had gone missing. And they charged him in connection with her murder, really thanks to her family and friends. They set this whole thing in motion. How badass is that? Oh, I think that's great. Are you saying that they arrested uh, him when they found her body? Is that correct? correct? Okay. Because then they were able, because they could, they had no body. They thought, for all they knew, Sarah had just run off on her own accord, right? Right. So you would think the story ends here. Okay, found the guy, done. No, the most shocking revelation was still to come. Before we talk about that, I want to talk about what we know leading up to Sarah's murder. So no surprise, the friend that she was planning to meet that evening was Khalil Wheeler Weaver. And he was actually an online acquaintance. Some reports say that they had known each other in passing, but others say that they had just met on that app. What actually happened was he offered to pay Sarah $500 for sex that evening. They had talked a few days prior and they had had a similar exchange and she backed out of the meeting because she says that she, you know, she got nervous and couldn't go through with it. In fact, the second time they ended up talking before, you know, this fateful night, She messaged him, you're not a serial killer, right? Oh, gosh. And that instinct, you know, the instinct was there. That was right before leaving the house to go meet up with him. And I read somewhere that he said, nope, I'm a cool guy once you get to know me. It's just so sad that she, you know, and I think she wrote like LMAO, like laughing my ass off, like, ha ha. But that just shows that I think she probably knew, like, should I be doing this? Should I not be doing this? So once he made her feel that he was not a serial killer, around 10 p.m. that night, she picked him up at an abandoned house in Orange, New Jersey. You also know Orange, New Jersey, right, I Megan? sure do. Yep. And eerily, this is the same house where at this moment when she picked him up, there was another woman's body dead in that home. We'll get to that. Okay. So after she picks him up, they drive to a 7-Eleven store, which is a few blocks away. And, you know, now we have surveillance cameras picking this up. She stayed in the car. He went in and he purchased some condoms. For some reason, one of the news articles mentioned that it was (laughs) Trojan fire and ice condoms. So there you have it. But either way, security cameras captured him in the store. And it would turn out the outfit he was wearing is the same outfit he would be seen wearing in other incidences. Okay, so he was wearing a black sweatshirt with a hood pulled over pretty much covering almost his whole face, black sweatpants, black sneakers, and tight-fitting black gloves. Oh, I mean, this outfit doesn't sound (laughs) good. So at 10.07 p.m., very few minutes later, they drove away and headed towards Eagle Rock Reservation, which again was this park. The park was in West Orange, and that is where Sarah's body would later be discovered. So who is this Khalil Wheeler Weaver? We don't know too much about him, but he was just 20 years old at the time of the crime. Okay. He worked at a grocery store. He was a security guard. And he also sometimes DJed as well, again, in Orange. Classmates described him as really keeping to himself mostly, somewhat nerdy in appearance. You know, he would wear a lot of like flannel shirts tucked into khakis and white sneakers, glasses. But some people say he was a funny guy. He had no criminal record whatsoever. By all accounts, comes from good home, good family. Several of his family members worked in various law enforcement jobs. His father had died when he was a little younger, but his stepfather, the police detective in East Orange, and his uncle, a retired detective with the Newark Police Department. Wow. Yes. The police were very quickly able to link him to two other unsolved murders of young women in the area and one attempted murder. How? 
Yes, and it was just seven days earlier that he had his last victim before Sarah. Oh, wow. That's really quick. And we'll talk a little bit more about those cases in a moment. But in February 2017, he was indicted on three counts of murder, one count of attempted murder, and a litany of other charges, including desecration of human remains, arson, sex assault, and kidnapping. So Sarah's family and friends really did a huge service for the community here. Well, if you're saying uh, it hasn't been proven yet, but if he's got three victims and you're saying serial killer. Again, three confirmed deaths and one attempted. We'll talk about the one, I guess you could say the one who got away is the one who really made this case what it was. Okay. So there was a joint trial for the three murder victims. The victim who was able to get away became a huge part of the trial, but the charges for her were in a separate trial. So in October of 2019, Khalil Wheeler-Weaver stood trial for the murders of 19-year-old Robin West of Philadelphia. Robin West was murdered on August 31st, 2016. 33-year-old Joanne Brown of Newark, New Jersey. And that murder occurred December 5th, 2016. And of course, the murder of Sarah Butler. All of the women were drugged. All of them were found with packing tape over their noses and mouths, and they were all strangled with an item of clothing. Although the two other cases, the cases of both Robin West and Joanne Brown, of course, are extremely important, we only have so much time. So for now, we're only going to focus on the evidence directly relating to Sarah's case, but I'm hoping we can cover the other victims in an upcoming episode. Okay. Before I get to more about Sarah's case, though, I do want to just say it is so clear that Wheeler Weaver targeted vulnerable victims. Both Robin West and Joanne Brown were young black women. They were confirmed sex workers, and they were women who suffered from mental health issues and homelessness. I find it quite interesting that Sarah did not fit this. Yes, Sarah was allegedly soliciting sex on this app, but she had no history of being a sex worker, and she came from a really strong family and no history of any mental health issues or homelessness. But it's possible that Khalil did not know exactly what Sarah's background was. You know, and this will all I know you're dying to talk about the serial killer aspect. I see you over there. No, he's I just know that he's obviously targeting women who are um, advertising for sex because they are an easy target and opportunity. And I think he probably honestly, he picked the wrong victim with Sarah, because if he can, unfortunately, if he continued to pick these marginalized, vulnerable victims, then he might still very well be out there. But Sarah had a family and she had friends who kept pushing to get answers and they got answers and they really got justice for a lot of people here. Good for them. Because, you know, we talk about this that, you know, as you said, they're they're seen somewhat as less human, less valuable, and no one's going to notice if they disappeared or no one's going to care or listen, unfortunately. What was the evidence against Khalil Wheeler-Weaver? There was not very much physical evidence. There were some trace amounts of DNA under Sarah's fingernails, but no physical evidence in the other two cases. They claim that he wore gloves and always wore a condom during the attacks, which might account for the lack of physical evidence. So the prosecution relied heavily on internet searches and cell phone data location. Khalil admitted to meeting every one of the victims. He just claims that he met them and he left and he doesn't know what happened to them after that. His cell phone data puts him at the location where he admits to meeting the victims, but also the locations where all of the bodies were found. Not so smart, Khalil. Before Sarah and Khalil met on November 22nd, he had searched the internet for information about date rape drugs and homemade poisons, how to put someone to sleep, and how to erase phone data. Specifically, 
he asks Google how to make homemade poisons to kill humans. And what chemical could you put on a rag and hold to someone's face to make them go to sleep immediately? Wow, taking all those other precautions and then Googling it. Well, then he did He did ask Google, though, how do you erase this? So. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. The prosecution also relied on surveillance footage and some information from police interviews where he lied a little bit about where he, about where he was at certain times. The one piece of evidence that was the strongest was the one victim who got away. Okay, tell me about this victim. She is... A survivor. She is a survivor, absolutely. So Tiffany Taylor was a huge part of the trial. She recounted waking up in the backseat of a car with duct tape on her face and then getting choked back to sleep. Eventually, she managed to loosen the tape by screaming and crying. If I remember correctly in the transcript, she actually said the reason why the tape loosened is because there was a mixture of blood and tears that loosened the tape. It was horrifying to listen to. He had choked her out. She came back to consciousness and she was very smart because instead of fighting back, I think she realized the ways that she could manipulate him. And she got him to trust her and to bring her back to the hotel because she said she had to retrieve her phone. Was she his first victim? She was not. She would have been the th- she would have been the third victim. Oh, she okay. was seven days before Sarah. Oh, OK. But after the first two women. Got it. So she knocks on this hotel door. She goes in and she locks the door behind her and she pretty much opens the, you know, opens the blinds and is like, ha ha, I'm in here. You're out there. She has the dangling handcuff from her wrist. And guess what's on surveillance camera? What? Khalil, you know, knocking, trying to get her back out and wearing the same exact outfit he was wearing when he went to 7-Eleven the night of Sarah's murder. So he unlocked her. He had her handcuffed and he unlocked her handcuffs. She was able to get out of it. How did she get out of her Apparently handcuffs? Apparently, I read somewhere that she's double jointed. And then I read somewhere also that she had asked him to loosen it, saying that it was hurting her. And she actually says when he obliged to loosen it, she knew she got him. Good. Good for her. Yeah, wow, she's really, she you have to read one of the articles that I source. It's, it really focuses on her story. And it is, they need to make a Netflix doc on this story. It's incredible. Okay. So, of course, she calls the police. And believe it or not, Megan, the police did not take it seriously. Because she's a sex worker. Because she's a sex worker. Not only was she a sex worker, she was female and she was African-American. I was going to say that too. So she told the police Khalil's exact name, showed them his Facebook page, pretty much handed him on a silver platter to the police. And also, let me also say that Tiffany Taylor was four months pregnant. She still had her handcuffs dangling from her wrist. And they treated, in her words, they treated her like trash. This has been a problem of, of cases like this historically. And I mean, that disappoints me because I know it's changed a lot, but obviously not so much. And if they treated, if they took Tiffany's claim seriously, Sarah's death could have been prevented because seven days later he kills Sarah. Yes. So there is, you know, they really dropped the ball here. The defense didn't have too much to say because obviously there's a lot of evidence here. The defense basically said, you know, he told police where he had last seen them. And he said that he was, you know, he left them and they were alive and safe. And if he were guilty, he would never. He would never have revealed. Yeah, these he would have exactly. He, he was would very have, forthcoming. Exactly, he was forthcoming, and he cooperated with investigators. And that is not the conduct of a guilty individual. And not only that, they went on to contend that the victims put themselves in vulnerable positions, and what happened to them afterward is not really Mister Wheeler Weaver's problem. Victim blaming. Exactly, lots of victim blaming. So the trial lasted two months. Did Khalil testify? He did not testify. Smart move. Very smart. Although, I mean, I don't think at this point, I don't think it would have 
helped him or hurt him. It doesn't matter, right? True. Strong case. Yep. So the trial lasted two months. On December 19th, 2019, very recently, after just two hours of deliberation, he was found guilty on all three counts of murder. And he also was found guilty on all the other convictions, which were uh, 10 other counts. He is now facing a life sentence plus 80 years. Good. I'm glad to hear that. I've been trying so hard to find where this case is now. I, you know, from what I found, it said he will be sentenced in early 2020, and that has not yet happened. And why do we think that is? Oh, Corona. Corona. Everything we know that was supposed to be slated for, you know, is getting pushed back. And obviously, he's not getting out anytime soon. No. I don't think they have a huge rush to get him sentenced. So that's where we are now. Of course, I want to pick your brain about this because I know you teach about serial killers. I want to give you some of my thoughts, and then I want you to correct me and school me on what's really going on. Unless you know. Well, unless you're right. (laughs) No one ever used the term serial killer, but this is clearly a serial killer. It does fit with the definition, three or more murders with a cooling off period. He does not exactly fit the profile of a serial killer from what I understand. He was very young at the time, just 20 years old, no known criminal history. He did follow a um, methodical obsessive pattern. All of his victims had similar profiles and he had the same method of killing. So that kind of feeds into what I know about serial killers. There was one other aspect of him that I think lends itself to the serial killer profile is that he had a strong interest in law enforcement. Remember I mentioned he was a grocery store security guard? Right. But searches of his computers and phone also revealed that he was very interested in taking a law enforcement exam sometime in the near future. Or he was at least very interested in getting information about what was on that exam. I mean, that's obviously terrifying. Thank goodness he didn't wind up in the field because then he would have just used his position of power as well, probably to right. solicit more victims. Like the Golden State Killer and other serial killers who, in, who are in positions of power and law enforcement. Right. And then he would have learned other, probably better tactics at covering this all up. So what do you think, Megan, uh, as far as does okay. he fit the profile of a serial killer? Yes, he does. But there are some things that are anomalies. One of the things is that most serial killers do not begin their offending until later on. And that doesn't mean they don't begin some type of offending. But usually there's a progression. A lot of times they might start with stalking or voyeurism or harming animals. There's usually, you know, this kind of workup. And I think that most of the male serial killers will begin their actual offending against humans, against people in their late 20s, early 30s. So in that way, he's very atypical. Just one thought on that. Just because he was never caught does not mean he was not exhibiting this behavior. He was very, I don't know if I mentioned this, but he was very clean cut. He almost resembled like Ted Bundy, kind of very preppy, you know, under the radar kind of guy. So I'm wondering if he kind of was doing all these shady things. Maybe he just never got caught. Is that possible? Oh, that's absolutely possible. Yeah. Yes. Okay, continue. Uh, Sorry. And you're right. Just because you didn't discuss it doesn't mean it didn't happen. Yeah. But regardless, most of these people spend years on this and they'll still do that into their 20s. So it is atypical that he would begin offending at such a young age. The way he selected victims makes sense. So usually serial killers will pick their sexual preference and they're usually intraracial. So they usually pick people from their own race. So in the fact that he's selecting young black females who are in positions that are vulnerable. A lot of serial killers have targeted prostitutes for the very reason that they know, A, they're easy targets, and B, huh, people probably won't care about them. So his selection of targets, the fact that he was very strict to his modus operandi, so how he killed, the way he did it every time, yes, there's usually a method by which they stick, and that's usually the way they, you know, they very often or very rarely would deviate from that. So he's very calm in that way. 
Is it true that most serial killers are white men? That's not true. That's a misconception now. So historically, at one point, there were certainly more um, white serial killers. But now what we know is that there are almost it's almost a match between black male serial killers and white serial. There's just about as many. So black male serial killers just do not get the same press. Yes. And they don't get the Netflix documentaries. And they often do not. And do you want to know why? That I is? do know why. Because okay. of their victims. Because is that right? That's correct. That's disgusting. Because their victims are usually black young females, a marginalized population already because they may be, you know, they're not always sex workers, so I don't want to imply that. Mm-hmm. But because of their, you know, because of their race, they do not get the attention that the stories of, you know, white, um, blonde or, you, you know what I mean? Like they haven't gotten the attention that uh, serial killers, uh, you know, the, the victims like of Ted Bundy mm-hmm. are going to get. We're going to change that right here, right now. Well, I mean... <laughs> I'm already, you know, it's great that we're already, uh, we're already teaching it. And the best way to change it is to just project the truth about Mm -hmm. this. And and the fact is, um, you know, they've caught some very prolific recently, some very prolific uh, male black serial killers who have very high body counts. Um, Samuel Little was one Mm -hmm. of them very recently. Uh, I don't know if you remember the, uh, I forget his name. I think it was Lonnie Jackson. He was known as the Grim Sleeper. Mm. Um, Very long careers of offending. And they're, De- there's definitely uh, there's more attention being paid now. So you'll say. you'll start using this case in your class. I already use cases. I already talk yeah. about so in my in my class in serial killers. I spend uh, you know at least uh, a class discussing the racial differences and why. Yeah, the why. Is- yep, the actual why. So my students will leave with a, a clear understanding mm-hmm. of why cases like Sarah's did not get enough attention. And you know it's unfortunate because like you said, Sarah's. Sarah's murder could have easily been prevented easily. had the police taken this case seriously. And so I, I, I was very disappointed to hear that in the, what was the year? Was it like 2016 or around, uh, you know? Oh, yeah. It, it, this is recent. This is this very is... recent. I, I was very disappointed to hear that the police did not take these claims seriously. And I think that is the most tragic part of this whole story. Obviously, the whole thing is tragic because there's so many victims. And something else I didn't mention about the case that was striking was in court, I saw footage of Khalil's mother embraced with one of the victim's fathers, I believe it was. And, you know, there was this really this strong moment of forgiveness and because everyone loses here. You know, Khalil's family is a victim in obviously in a different way, but they're a victim as well because I couldn't agree with you more. You know, so it was nobody's won here. Yeah, nobody. But uh, it really is, I will say, really wonderful, you know, detective work by Sarah's friends. And they probably prevented, so cool. uh, you know, could have prevented the next prolific serial killer. Oh, yeah, they definitely. I want to thank them for keeping our community safe because I want to give them more of a pat on the back than the police in this one. I absolutely agree. So thank you again for listening to today's case on Sarah Butler. I'd like to turn now to the question that we had from our patron, Laura Minor. So Laura had a question about a case which she says fascinates her. She says the alleged perpetrator is not female, but the victims were. Jeffrey McDonald. I don't think he did it, especially after reading Errol Morris's book. If you guys have any thoughts on it, I would love to hear. I would love to talk about this case. Oh, Megan, I bet you, you would. you know a lot about this case? I know the case. Probably not as well as you do. I think you're probably, you probably have better insight. So this case ha- is pretty old at this point. We're talking about 50 years ago, right? right? Jeffrey McDonald, he was in the U.S. Army. He was accused of murdering his pregnant wife and two very young daughters. Very, very brutal crime scene. It's such a sad story. You say that and I think of Shanann Watts and Chris Watts yep. too. 
It's similar, except this was in the home, and we'll get into we'll get into that right now. McDonald says that four intruders, three men and one woman, broke into the home and began stabbing them. They were chanting words like acid is groovy and kill pigs and also wrote the word pig in blood on the walls. He was stabbed once and he suffered a collapsed lung. He also, there's some reports say he had defensive wounds, but there's a little back and forth about whether or not they were in fact defensive wounds. But unfortunately, his wife was stabbed more than 40 times and each of the young children were stabbed dozens of times. So he actually, at first, he was exonerated by a military court. So in 1970, he was exonerated of all charges. And then about 10 years later, he was convicted on criminal charges. Okay, got it. The prosecution contends that he actually staged the crime scene and he tried to blame a hippie gang. Remember, what was happening at this time? This is Manson, right? Exactly. Yep. And there were some parallels between some of the Manson crimes and what happened in this crime. There's also copycats of Manson. Absolutely. So So during trial, he did end up taking the stand. And we know that's not common. And not surprisingly, he didn't do very well. I think it was a harmless error. I think that he would have been convicted even if he didn't take the stand. But he was convicted and sentenced to three life terms. Now, we're talking decades of failed appeals. The Innocence Project actually joined his defense in 1999. When the Innocence Project comes on, I feel like they see something. You know, they don't take every case. They have to be selective. You know this better than I do. But so when they take a case, I think they see real, you know, there's there's some doubt. The reason why the Innocence Project got involved is there was some untested DNA. There you go. So they ended up getting the hairs tested. It took almost a decade for them to get these hairs tested. As it often does. Yep. And these hairs did not match McDonald's. Okay. However, that was not enough because, of course, it is possible that there, you know, there could be unknown hairs at the scene. You know, I feel like with these DNA cases, Amy, you know better than I do, but I feel like there have been a number of them where the hair exonerates someone and then you have just the other half where they go, well, you know, it could have been. Well, some- I think it's easier if the hairs point to somebody else. So mm-hmm. it wasn't a match to him and there was no, it didn't hit on anything in CODIS. Got it. So I think makes perfect sense. Yeah, but you're absolutely right. So is he innocent? Is he guilty? It's so hard to say if I had to. I lean a little more towards innocence, partially because of what you said. I really trust the Innocence Project. And I really believe that when they get involved, they do their due diligence. But if you look, his injuries were very superficial compared to the others. So there was a lot of, you know, there were a lot of questions there. But on the flip side, there was a ton of issues with the way the evidence was handled. There was a confidential, actually, she wasn't even confidential, but there was an informant that fit the description of one of the women that McDonald's says was an intruder. And she ended up testifying towards McDonald's guilt. And there's a lot of questions. There's some people that actually think that this woman, her name was Helena Stockley. She died back in the 80s. But there's a whole camp of people that believe that she was actually one of the people involved in this. So where the case stands now, last I've heard, I believe in December 2019, so pretty recently, he was denied relief. I do believe at this point, his only chance at release is either being granted parole or granted a commutation. Yeah, I think you're right on that. And uh, just, I don't have much to add because I have to say I can make a case for his innocence or guilt. And so I wouldn't feel comfortable, you know, leaning one way or the other at this point. Thanks for doing a better job than I would have, Amy. Oh, thank you, Laura. And if you ever want to chat about this case more, call me. I loved it. I could talk for hours about this case. I actually actually thought the same thing. We can cover this case. As she points out, the victims were all females. No, thank you for bringing us this case. Uh, You know, I didn't know of it, and I'm glad I do. And you're right, I will use it as an example. So thank you so much, Amy. Thank you, Megan. Thanks to our listeners, and we'll catch you next time on Women in Crime. Women in Crime is written and hosted by Megan Sachs and Amy Schlossberg. Our producer and editor is James Varga. 
Our music is composed by Dessert Media. If you enjoy the show, you can get access to ad-free episodes, exclusive AMAs, and other bonus content for a small monthly contribution through Patreon. To find out more, visit patreon.com slash womenincrime. Sources for today's episode comes from NorthJersey.com, New Jersey 12, NJ 12, and The Washington Post. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.